Welcome to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recent conversation from our ongoing Office Hours Faculty Spotlight Series featuring Professor Peter DeBear. Peter is a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty here at the Darden School of Business. And I recently caught up with Peter to talk about his background, what led him to Darden, several of the elective courses he teaches, including his Economics of Water class, as well as a book he recently published with his brother, To America and Back Again, all about his grandmother's life. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my recent Office Hours conversation with Professor Peter DeBear. All right, well, welcome in, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for this latest installment of our ongoing Office Hours conversation series. This is our faculty spotlight. It's brought to you by Darden Ideas to Action, which features all kinds of great uh, research and publications from Darden faculty, as well as Darden admissions. We think this is a great way for you to meet incredible people who teach uh, the students here at Darden. And we're, jo we're joined today by a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty, Peter DeBear. Uh, Peter teaches in the full-time MBA program as well as the executive MBA program. And so, Peter, thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your day to join us for this conversation. All right. Yes, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. I think it's a great initiative uh, to whoever started this uh, kudos to or her. All right. Well, and to our attendees, um, just a, a couple of things but as we kick off. Um, we'll take the first 15 minutes or so to kind of talk a little bit about Peter's background and how he ended up here at Darden. And then we'll start to transition uh, to his work, his research, publication, uh, some of the things that he's been working on recently. If you have questions as we go along, I imagine uh, you might, please feel free to ask via the Q&A. We're going to turn off the chat now, uh, but we will keep an eye on the Q&A. And so, Peter, um, let's let's start with what I think is a really a very basic question. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you, and and your background? All right. Yes. So, most relevant, I guess, for for Darden is I'm an economist. Right. So, and uh, probably as you as I speak, you already hear that uh, there's a bit of an accent. So people typically want to figure out where I'm from. So, and yes, I uh, I grew up in Belgium. Right. So and that's where where the the accent comes from. So uh, and uh, I mean, a bit uh, um, as an international economist, that's really my, my specialization. Um, I live an international life. So my wife is from Germany, right? So she, she's actually a historian, right? So and I have two children, right? So uh, one is uh, an engineering student at VT and the other one is, is much younger, is nine, right? So and they, they all speak our languages. So it's a bit of a, of a mess for those who have dinner with us. So this German, this Flemish and uh, there's English spoken, right? So, um, as I said, my, my specialization is on the one hand international economics, right? So topics like globalization, that is really what I care about. At the other hand, it's the case that, and this is about 10 years ago that I started working on water, right? So the, the economics of water, and these are two topics that are dear to my heart. And I I have the opportunity in uh, Darden to basically teach those things and at the same time do research about them. So uh, I'm in a happy place. Well, uh, how did you get interested in economics? It, it's always interesting to hear how faculty got to the, the area where they sp really spent their, their life and career. So it, it, it wasn't it wasn't a direct road to economics. So I uh, I come from a, uh, a family that uh, was a bit artistic where there are lots of interest in, in cultural things so it was it was kind of natural that and we traveled a lot so it was kind of natural that I wanted to study languages so I studied German and literature and philosophy so and it was actually to that extent important to me that I considered going for a doctorate so I had a, a scholarship to go to Germany so and in Germany I took an, uh, my first economics class uh, his, uh, economic history and I felt like that this uh this way of merging theory and empirics, right? So that, and this way of trying to explain a society that this was uh, uh, giving me uh, more traction than uh, uh, the cultural philosophical angle. Um, but I should say that um, I'm happy that both are in my in my in my life. My wife is a historian, a cultural historian, so and she is from Germany, so the, this this element is not completely lost. So, but uh, 
yeah, that that was basically uh, how I, by staying in Germany, taking kind of history classes, basically then said, okay, I'll uh, go back to the drawing board and I'll start from here. And then basically I uh, did things in a fairly quick time and ended up in, uh, in the United States in, uh, in uh, Michigan, University of Michigan, to do my PhD. So that's uh, that's the road. Well, did you always know that you were going to come to US, the US for, for school? Was that something that, that you wanted to do or did that become clear as you went down the economics path? Oh, it, it, one thing was clear that I would uh, would study abroad, right? So I, we had traveled a lot. So I remember when I, the first year that I started at university, one of the first things I did was uh, basically go to the international office and figure out what it would take to... Uh, to get abroad, right, and get scholarships, and what I had to do, what the hurdles were, yeah. So that was that was clear. But then, um, with uh, economics, I mean, to uh, these were very prestigious scholarships that I had to to get. So it, it was difficult that you would say, "Look, yeah, I'll, I'll get this," because that, there were like thirty in Belgium who got this, these things, right? So, uh, so, but yeah, as a as I uh, was uh, progressing in economics, yeah, increasingly, uh, since I mean, economics is still to some extent dominated by uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. I mean, it has been changing, but um, so it's certainly when I uh, started, so it was clear that if you, uh, if that would be your specialization, that this would be very helpful to come to the United States. Yes, that, that, that's, that's true. That definitely was, was the case. So how did you get to Darwin? How did I get to Darwin? Well, basically, I, I was before at uh, the University of Texas, right, in, uh, in Austin. So in, uh, my wife was uh, finishing her PhD. And so and then we basically had to look for two jobs, right? So in uh, uh, University of Virginia was one that uh, wanted to hire both of us, right? So, in, so my wife teaches in the history and the German department and... I'm here at Darden. So, um, um, so, and I must say that um, to some extent, when I started here, I did not really know all that much about the school itself and its uh, particular approach. So, it was a learning process. So, in it's, I mean, it probably, probably it's similar to students who come here, right? So they have read about it, right? So, but in the end, I feel like it's when you're here that you uh, understand what this whole thing about case method, case teaching is about and uh, the community. I mean, it's, yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I had heard about it. People had talked to me about it, but I, I, it's only when I was here that I really uh, got a sense of what this really was about. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because you're someone who's been recognized uh, over and over again for the excellence of your teaching and the experience that students have in your classes. You were you were featured on a faculty Friday not so long ago on uh, Darden social media, and it was great to see all the posts from students about how much they loved your classes and how much they they remember uh, from uh, the classes that that you've taught. And so, um, have you always been someone that had that passion for for teaching? Sometimes when you you start down this sort of academic world, um, people, you know, start to think a lot about research and publication, yet Darden is a place where it's both things, right? Well, I mean, yeah, it's both things. It's for me also, it's both things. But um, I should say also that uh, so my parents were teachers, my brother's a teacher. So it's it's been something that was uh, was important. So it's like almost given to me in my uh, DNA, right? So in um there's there's something which is uh, almost addictive to teaching in the sense that um next to doing research of course is that that um and i i feel this most when i uh, teach in the first year right so when i teach the global economics and markets class right so that there are many people who have never taken economics right so in uh, in this i mean this is a very condensed course that's that's for sure so, it's, but you you have this opportunity to to uh, open people's eyes and have them look at the world that surrounds them in a 
in a somewhat different way, right? To think about how incentives matter, right? So how the global economy, how these different countries interact with one another. And so, and especially when you teach the first part of economics in the first uh, quarter, which I did in uh, uh, the Emma the part, right? Is that you see people's eyes open, right? And this is incredibly rewarding. And then, especially also, and that's another motivation, is that to teach it for a group of students who, uh, I mean, who will, who, who in, in, in many instances will actually play a, a leading role in society, right? So to help start that conversation about how the economy works and how a, a firm fits in there and how um, once you see or understand how the economy works a little bit, I mean, you there's got to be a way in which that will translate in how you you'll run your operation, right? So, and I think this is an this is incredibly rewarding to have that conversation, right? So, so, and for me, I need both. I need teaching. I need research. So it's like if I have been in the class too much, I feel like okay, now I, it's time to really uh, get down to the nitty gritty again, right? So. And, and after a period, I mean, so like, as I said, so I'm now in a period of, uh, of research. After that, I feel like, okay, it's time to come out again. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so I need both. It's, a, it's, a, it's for me, a, uh, an equilibrium that works well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been fun to talk with faculty about the, the case method on these conversations, because for many of our prospective students, um, they've never learned in this way. Uh, it doesn't necessarily reveal itself. The name doesn't exactly tell you uh, what it is. How do, how do you explain the case method of what you do uh, in these uh, global economies, markets class, in, in your electives uh, with, with prospective students? That's right. So, I mean, so I, I would, when you say case method, I think for me, the emphasis on is on method, right? So it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a way of teaching which... Um, as an instructor, your tool is basically the question. You can ask question questions, right? So, and uh, the the students are the ones who uh, who basic. I mean, they have studied the material. They are the ones who have to give content, right? So, and it's that interaction, that game of me asking questions and and students providing content, right? That build uh, build this class. And so, this is so and. I emphasize method very much because, I mean, for me, it's a way of teaching. It doesn't really matter whether it's really, strictly speaking, a case. So for me, this can be a video, can be a speech, can be an article, right? So uh, I I think that's that's really important. And then um, what's what's nice about it is that um, that it's a way a way that is fits very well the the profile of uh, our students, I think, right? So that's, yes, you've got to know how things fit together or in this particular case, how how the economics work. But in the end, and I think our our graduates really excel in this, is that you've got to be able to explain this in everyday language or with some precision though, right? It's not just chatting, but you have to be able to explain that to the people that you lead, right? So, in, uh, so the communication is incredibly important and the setting, right, of us asking questions and students responding is basically a, a friendly environment to uh, train these skills. And I think, um, I think it's very relevant, not only in, uh, for MBAs, but especially for them, right? So I, I make the case that basically... It's um, a way of teaching that's uh, incredibly valuable. It's uh, much richer than uh, just uh, going through PowerPoints, right? There's way too much of that, right? So, and uh, um, I would suggest that it, it would be good. And I mean, you see some of that also in other disciplines that people uh, have more attention for this um, higher level way of, uh, of, of, of teaching, right? So, I mean, it's... I mean, as I said, I, I did, um, I came from an economics department, right? So I was a fairly interactive teaching, but teacher, but it actually does take some to uh, to find your own, I mean, the same way that 
we also said that students have to find their voice, right? The way they can operate that's in sync with who they are. I mean, for, uh, for a teacher, that's the same. You've got to find your own way of uh, expressing yourself, right? That's in line with who you are. And uh, students will notice that, and you notice that yourself. If that. So, it, and it does take uh, quite, quite a bit. I mean, I remember one of the things that um, for me was, was an, uh, an initial challenge. And I mean, and I think it later on turned, uh, turned out to be some of my strengths, but initially, so the when you ask a difficult question, and I'm a bit hard nosed, so uh, so I asked a bit the difficult question, and um, um, the answer doesn't really um, get you much further, right? So how to respond to that, right? So and initially, I uh, I was just I would just bring in somebody else, but that's really not how this should work, right? So and then basically this technique to really with, take smaller steps, get to a point where uh, we've all learned something and the student who was struggling in particular has learned something, right? And then release and open it up, right? So that's, that's um, something which I struggled with initially, but which I've kind of finessed, right? So, and it's, uh, it's, it's become something that's sometimes a fairly fun part of, of the deal, right? And so it's, I think my sense is that many students know that. That's how things operate, right? So in that uh, they'll have to do this little dance with me, right? So and we'll get to a point where uh, we resolve things, but uh, there may be a moment where we actually struggle a little bit to figure it out. Yeah. I loved your point uh, around sort of the parallel paths, right? Students finding their voice and finding their footing. And of course, this is a journey that faculty have been on as they teach here. And the thing that's come through so clearly in these conversations that I've really enjoyed spotlighting for our prospective students is just the craft uh, that the faculty have for that time, you know, the, the care and attention, uh, the fact that they're thinking a lot about how they're teaching and how they're engaging with students in the classroom. Uh, Peter, I wonder, I mean, you obviously taught a number of classes here, here at Darden. Do you have a favorite case, uh, something that you always look forward to the conversation uh, about? Um, so, the, I mean, there are many, but um, so there, there is one case which I uh, uh, like in particular, and it relates to my, the one, it's the first case actually from uh, my uh, Global Economics of Water class, so, which is this, this one class on, on water. Right, which is about the uh, Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is building or has built on the Nile, right? So in there, um, why do I like the case? Well, so it's when students take the, the water class, many enter with a certain preconception about what really the big issue for water is. And many will say, look, you know, the... Uh, the um, Wars of the future will be about water, right? So, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, the wars of the future will be about water, right? So, in, uh, and this is very much, people who make that argument very much look at water in a very limited way. They see it as really a matter of supply. you got enough water or you don't, right? Whereas the, the whole thing, I mean, the, the purpose of the course in a certain way is also to to look at it more broadly, right? I mean, there's not only supply, there's demand as well, right? So, and there's lots of things that you can do if there is scarcity, if there's not enough water, right? To, uh, to live up to that situation. Yes, one is to very narrowly focus on supply. The other one is to say, you know, maybe I can use my water a lot more efficiently, right? So from the perspective of Egypt, right? So, I mean, they are wasting lots of water. Yes, there isn't much, but they are using it very inefficiently. And if you actually start thinking about this, working on the demand side and on more efficient use, you would be a lot cheaper than engaging in war. And it's actually beneficial, right? So, so, in, so it's, it's this, uh, I mean, we, so for the, the, the many times I've thought each time it's this aha moment that comes through very strongly, right? And suddenly, all right, we, we got to open this box here, right? So there's, so and that's where this, this framework of economics uh, comes in, where you say, look, all right, uh, 
what are the different aspects that we have to look at if we want to uh, understand the phenomenon of water, which is typically take, taken for granted. And typically, um, the predominant view is the one um, that's on supply, right? And this is a bit in line, this is a bit in line with, uh, with how water historically has been studied, right? So it's been a, a, a field uh, dominated very much by uh, engineering and environmental science, right? So it's only like in the last 10, 15 years, and I mean, and the, the nice thing is there's an openness, but there's in the last 15, 10, 15 years that really also the uh, uh, engineering folks and the environmental scientists have opened up and they realize that, look, if we're going to solve some of these water issues, it's not just a question of what do I construct, right? So this thing's got to operate. There is the, the human factor. You've got to get people to agree on this, right? So in, um, And it's there that basically social sciences uh, increasingly play a role and uh, uh, have to play a role, right? So and so that's where... Um, the uh, the nice thing about uh, the water topic is because it's uh, water's everywhere, right? So that it basically puts you almost by default in an interdisciplinary setting, right? So this is incredibly rewarding. How uh, I mean, it's on the one hand humbling, right? Since um, look, you work with people from uh, from all different fields who look at the world differently, have different methodologies. You don't, which you all don't necessarily understand and have their own emphasis right so to to then juggle this right so and uh, yeah so then and, and as i said the the nice thing about this uh renaissance dumb case is that this brings this uh as a, at, a, at the start of the class brings this very much to the fore it's like all oh, right this is where we stand here okay let's unpack this how did you get interested in this particular topic, Peter? You mentioned that you came to this kind of economics of water, looking at this particular uh, question about ten years ago. Uh, what what sparked for you? So I mean, so this is um, in a way it's a coincidence, right? And it's it's one tied, it's one tied to Darden in a way. So I'm not sure um, if I would have gone someplace else that this would have happened. So. Um, um, as you as you know, right? So there are lots of people coming through at Darden, right? So there's too many people. You could basically spend every day talking to people who come through, which which you should not, but you could, right? So and um, there's uh, often invitations that you get to uh, to talk to people who have a question. So and I'm fairly selective in these, but now and then I say, all right, yeah, okay, maybe this this looks interesting. So. So there was somebody from the Nature Conservancy who was looking for uh, somebody with a sense of economics who could talk about water in uh, a global setting. So and, uh, I, uh, I talked to uh, this person. It was actually a very enjoyable conversation. I, uh, I learned that um, many of the questions were related to, or at least that the framework in which I operated was one that will be amenable to addressing these questions. And at the same time, I understood that uh, within, within water, that apparently there wasn't too much thinking that really um, took economics seriously, right? So, in, uh, so I thought, okay, that's, uh, I mean, so this is something as a, uh, as, a, uh, uh, as a professor that I do, so I do, research, I do teaching, and I always have like five, ten percent of my time where I play, meaning I do something where I don't necessarily uh, know whether where this where this will lead. Right. So but I, I allow it to to give it a chance. Right. So and this was uh with water like this. Right. So and uh, we uh, ended up uh uh, giving a uh, a course together, we taught a course together on main grounds, right? So and uh, then we um, ended up writing papers together. Um, then yeah, I started uh, teaching the class. I mean, so in 
at Darden, people thought that because there aren't really across uh, MBAs programs, there are very few, if any, where you can take a class on water, right? So, so the, the school was uh, was open to it. It was like in the usual ways that uh, we operate. It's like, look, if there is demand, if you can get students interested, sure, uh, more power to you. Just uh, go ahead, right? So, in uh, um, so yeah, this has been incredibly. Um, uh, rewarding cooperation uh, with, uh, uh, with with that person, Brian Richter is his name. Right? So, and we're actually currently, I, I we, we got an uh, NSF grant, right? So, National Science Foundation grant, seven hundred thousand dollars, right? So, this is a very prestigious grant, right? So, he's also part of this, right? Where we have a team um, across a few universities that uh, that work on water. So, yes, uh, it started with a coincidence, but. Uh, this, uh, yeah, there has been a very rewarding 10 years working on water, both research-wise and in the class. So we're talking about uh, your economics of water elective, and you've been teaching this for a number of years. I, I wonder how has the topic evolved uh, since you've been teaching the class, you know, where you started to where you are now? Well, obviously, since I, I, uh, I'm not a hydrologist, right, so there has been lots of learning Right on my part too, right. So the the thing I I like about the classes has been really one of a give and take, right. So in in different ways. Um, so like what an important part of the classes is the projects, right. So uh, that are presented at the end of, of the class, right. So in uh, this has been incredibly rewarding because. Um, Basically, you have a set of very motivated students, right, who are have an entrepreneurial streak, right? So who, who bring to my attention and to the attention of the, of the other students, right, different topics from around the world. I mean, there's no, there's so much going on in water. There's no way I can cover all these topics, right? So in, in this way, basically, uh, I learned a lot from them, right? So this has, has, has been very rewarding and then, Another element in that case is that we had um, always one or two speakers, right? So in, uh, um, I was very involved, I'm still, still in with uh, uh, the rest of the university, right? So we brought somebody who then stayed here for one, two days, sometimes longer, right? So I had conversations with them and oftentimes uh, um, wrote a case with them, right? So that basically now is that many of the cases surround uh, or about topics of people that actually we I've had or students have had a real interaction with right so it's uh, I feel like it's uh, increasingly a course that on the one hand gets you the framework which I think is essential to think about uh, water right so in this economic lens at the same time it's uh, I think like it's incre increasingly anchored and, and grounded in uh, and backed up by uh, sometimes tough conversations that we've had uh, while writing this, right? So in, uh, um, yeah, the, the, the last, so in uh, September was probably one of the, the best runs we've had. It was, I had an incredibly motivated uh, group. I mean, I, there was, it was really oversubscribed. I tried to, you know, if I uh, don't go beyond 50, I mean, our, our ideal is 40, 40 students, so that basically these projects can, but uh, there was such a long uh, waiting, so I pushed it up to 50, but there were still so many. So I'll, yeah, it was it was incredible. But uh, yeah, um, I, I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, it's when you have this, this conversation that starts and there, there's a realization where, look, um, we can actually bring in new insights here. Our new, I mean, no, nobody knows all the cases of water around the globe, right? So uh, we can all, all contribute in a way. Uh, if if everybody sees this, that look, that so this is like a public good here, right? And everybody chips in, then uh, yeah, then this is incredibly rewarding, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's been really, really a joy, and uh, also bringing in more things to focus on, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we got a good question in the Q&A. You'd mentioned that a lot of folks, they start at the supply 
uh, side of this question and you know this idea that there will eventually be wars in the future about water access to water um, but then you said the importance of thinking about demand and how we think about using water and can we use it more efficiently uh, one of the folks who's here today asked uh, do you have an example or maybe is there a case that y'all read that looks at someone, a company, a country really being efficient with the use of water or interesting work around so that maybe, 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 Brett, you can show this water graph that I, uh, uh, so, so, I mean, in, in a way, the, the question that's, that's being asked relates to, uh, uh, relates to something I'm focusing on at this very moment, right? So we, we have this NSF grant, which is uh, to study the, um, the uh, Colorado River, right, where, as you know, we have a serious drought issue, right? So in, uh, so in the, the graph that I'm showing, right, is on the one hand, right, the uh, supply, right, so this is the, the light blue, right, the supply, the water that's available for a very, very long period of time, right? So, and obviously there's variability in this. And then you have the, the darker blue, which is the water consumption, right? So what you what you clearly see is that, water consumption has been steadily increasing, right? Steadily increasing to that extent, right? That's in uh, the, the last 20 years, right? 20, 30 years, there have been quite a few instances where basically the there's way much more water consumption, right? Than there's water available, right? And then that's only possible because there are these reservoirs, right? These reservoirs we uh, we all learn about, right? So that that are, are historic low levels, right? Because we're basically overdrawing the balance that we have, right? So and so and this is the, the 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 challenge of the project is also to to see what we're gonna do about this, right? So how are we gonna bring demand more in line with supply, right? And so and one of the things that's uh, oftentimes um is an important factor is that it's pricing, right? So um, people take water for granted and um, it's, it's in, I mean, the, the most outrageous example is Saudi Arabia where basically they have so little water, use so much, and it's virtually available for free, right? So very long time it was like this. In the, in the United States still, in many instances, water is priced way too low, right? So in, there's no way that you can bring um, demand and supply in balance if you do not price properly. Because and this pricing signal is incredibly important because it it's not just about all right if I um, pay for water then I'll probably save more water, but it's it's also the incentive it provides, right? The incentive for investing in saving water. Right of or the 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 return on on innovation, right? This is all tied to to what you talk to entrepreneurs. Some in the U.S. they say sometimes that look, why is it that uh, the innovation in the water sphere is is lagging? And to some extent, that's related to the fact that look, water is is not priced properly. So uh, yeah, who's gonna be willing to to invest in it because there isn't a return, right? So, yeah. It's an interesting point um, about the connection between pricing and investing or people moving into seeing this as as uh, well an industry that they they would want to innovate in. Um, I hadn't thought, I had not thought about it um, in in that way. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing um, out in the American West, looking at the Colorado River? There's been a lot of conversation about the extreme weather uh, in this region of the United States. Uh, certainly all, all the rain recently in California, the conversations about um, how do we capture precipitation when we have these kind of historic, like there's been a, just a lot of conversation around mm -hmm. this region of the country and the disruption that's happening there. Um, tell us more about the work that you're doing. So and on the large First macro and then where we started, right? So it's basically the the nice thing is that's an interdisciplinary approach, right? So we'll basically we'll we'll bring together reservoir operations. So we have an expert on that, right? So with um, I mean agriculture is really the the most water intensive 
uh, industry that we have, right? So how water is used in agriculture is incredibly important. So we have uh, some people who are really can uh, measure very well how much water is actually used by agriculture, right? So, and then there's the question of how can we affect the allocation, reallocation of water, right? Is there potential for some market type mechanism, right? For example, implicitly could be a following program where you pay farmers, right? A given amount per, per, per uh, for the fact that they would not be using a uh, um, a part of their of their acreage, right? So in um, so th that's the broad thing. Or is like how can we puzzle these together? Our way in, and that's where I'm working on uh, currently, is very much trying to understand a very complex water rights system, right? So it's not like uh, you and I could just go out and uh, take whatever water we can. No, you, there is. There's a, a you've got to have that right to do it, right? So, and this is uh, this is related to uh, a very somewhat ancient uh, and or antiquated system, right? Um, where basically it's prior appropriation, right? So it's basically seniority. The older rights have the first pick at the water, right? So, and so, and the the amazing thing as we are looking at this is that. Uh, to my knowledge, people haven't actually looked at this very carefully, how this actually operates, right? So, and that's where we start, because I, I mean, or that at least where I start as part of the group to, to look at this water rights system, is it actually working the way people say it is, right? So um, how is this working, right? So when, uh, if, if there are, I mean, the way this normally is, is that look, if, uh, one very senior water right doesn't have enough water, it will place a call, right? So basically that will make sure that the more junior rights will have to give up their water so that the senior rights can be fulfilled, right? So how is this exactly working? Is it the way we think that it's, you, you place a call and then uh, the junior right gives up? Is that effectively how it is, right? So what determines a that a... Uh, a senior right makes a call, right? So these very basic questions and surprising part is that um, even that it's at the heart of the, um, the I mean, the, 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 the water distribution and redistribution, um, it's one that uh, my sense is people haven't looked at too carefully. So, so this, this is uh, potentially a project with quite a bit of mileage, I think. Yeah, the interesting thing about water also is that it has this, uh... Well, it's utility overlay. So you've got you've got the government involved. You've got this legal component to it. You've also got a, a market component to it. Uh, companies doing this. You have consumers. You have the broader societal yes. uh, context, environmental context. What what role do you see government? I mean, when you think about this, how do you think about that government uh, layer? I mean, so there's there's one thing always where um, um, that. In the end, because it's a public good and because it's an essential, I mean, water is essential for life, right? So that in the end, the government can step in, right? So it's, if you, it's like, if you really think, I mean, if you think, look, I'm going to sit on water, right? And wait till it really gets so bad. And then I'll, I'll sell it at exorbitant uh, prices and I'll make so much money, right? So that, there's a limit to this because in the end, it's not your water. You have the right to the water, right? So, and if, if it really gets too far, a government can step in and will be asked to step in, right? So, so this, 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 but, but of course, if the government steps in, there's, there's got to be an agreement, right? There's politics then, right? So you got to agree to step in and, um, so in, in Colorado, the amazing part is, or in, uh, along the Colorado, the amazing part is that you have this incredible drought, but uh, it seems like it's still not bad enough till the agents get to cooperate, right? So in, uh, also then, <laughs> uh, yeah, if a government steps in, it's got to, I mean, this is a political decision, right? So it's, it's got to be backed up because somebody will... Uh, 
uh, draw a, la- a, a line in the sand here, right? So it's yeah, it's it's interesting. The political economy is very interesting, right? So and at the same time, it's um, I mean, you you can see, um, especially in a country like ours, where uh, property rights are incredibly important. That if you are sitting on these senior rights, right? Um, yeah. I guess you you'll fight hard to give that up. I mean, that's at least uh, what what you see in the West. I mean, even if in uh, you would where in situation where you think that the extreme scarcity would uh, have people see a common good or a, a common uh, better future or a way of solving or addressing that, uh, uh, we are not there. Right, so and this is, I mean, this is then a political dimension that enters the problem, right? So we're, we're, um, yeah, it's a question also then as a society, what, uh, what are we willing to uh, do um, to actually address that problem, right? And so, and we are at a very, very difficult spot in that regard, right? So, um, as uh, I don't have to. <laughs> explain that to you how how currently in the US um, there's not much of a taste for compromise right so in a, you see that to that extent that yes in a, this very um, strained situation along the Colorado that uh, we, we haven't found a way yet yeah. well Peter I feel like we could keep talking about the economics of water this is an infinitely fascinating topic and, and one that obviously touches all all of our lives uh, you, to, because water, as noted, is, is essential for life. I want to make sure, though, that we find some time to talk about your other elective uh, that you teach, uh, Managing International Trade and Investment. Um, I think this will also give us an opportunity to talk about a book that you recently published with, with your brother as well. But before we get to that book, um, tell us a little bit more about, about the, this course, uh, Managing International Trade and Investment. What's it all about? Right. So, um, well, so I mean, maybe I should start with um, um, focusing on the, the perspective, right? So, basically, this is how we start the conversations, right? So, I, uh, I say, look, um, for business, open markets are incredibly vital, right? So, basically, there is no business with, I mean, business needs the global economy, right? So you need to uh, reach suppliers across the world. You need to reach demand across the world. So it's incredibly important. So and I basically argue or say, look, the perspective of the course is that more than anybody else, we in a business school should understand how globalization works. Right. So more than anybody else, because it's our bread and butter, we should understand this. And this implies, however, that we should buy, understand the benefits, but we should also imply, understand the drawbacks and the implications of of globalization. And as long as we are only focused on how it benefits us and do not see the implications it may have that affect people adversely, um, we will have a very hard time to make the arguments that we want to uh, to live in and live and operate in a globalized world, right? So it's basically more: look, how can we, as a business community, preserve globalization? That is currently uh, uh, a point of discussion, a point of contention, right? And uh, so, and then basically, it's trying to unpack this right so see what's behind what some of the driving forces of globalization are what are some of the rewards what are some of the understood implications that we'll have for um reallocation for inequality right so what's the the policy framework is right so we 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 have to really understand this very much and then also realize that um yes uh, globalization has an impact on inequality but it's certainly not the only one and it's it's probably not even the most important one right so and then so i mean there's technological change right so there is um 
access or unequal access to to education right so there are different tax schemes that benefit people differently right so there's many other reasons why we have this massive inequality but what's what's amazing is that um a lot of people will actually pinpoint globalization or pick it out as one of the most important ones right so why is that right so so that that's basically a uh sometimes a difficult conversation right so where you uh where you see look um all of us in business schools especially right we stand to benefit from globalization right so um we are typically fairly high skilled labor right workers right so who reap more of the benefits from a globalization right multinationals have benefited quite a bit from globalization as well right so but we should not forget that um for lower skilled workers there can often be a, a negative impact right so um and that um multinationals right so have evaded taxes for example on a massive scale right so these are things that if we really want to preserve uh, globalization we will have to think about how as a business community uh we we think about this right and so it is not about me preaching look this is what you've got to do no it's a conversation i don't have the answers to this but one thing is clear that as we benefit from globalization and if we want to preserve this we as a business community should more than others understand its implications right so that's basically the 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 gist of the of the course and it's it's sometimes a very lively conversation as you can imagine how do you make space for current events i mean and i'm thinking about just where we are right now in the world i'm dealing with a pandemic what that has meant for some of these conversations you got all the geopolitical stuff going on right now yeah which is a sort of moving into uh maybe even a potentially new ordering of of the world and the global powers um how do you make space uh for these kinds of conversations in addition to all the other things you have planned for the oh, course so that's not difficult i mean this basically bubbles up uh as we go right i mean the explicitly cases that deal with uh, the trade policies of the last few years so this is uh yeah this is really not uh, it's much more the challenge is actually much more to say all right let's take this step by step right so let's let's start over these 14 classes let's start building up an argument right and then then each time discuss that argument but, but not right away think that look after one class you can figure out the whole economy i mean this is not something that you can settle uh in a tweet so to speak right so you got to have a so and it's it's the challenge in the course is more to pace people say look all right i hear you let's have this conversation but let's bring in what all we know in the field about it yeah well building on that uh where do you start and where do you end uh in this course like where where's the where's the starting point for students i'm curious about about that yeah so the, that varies right so you have students who are very uh literate in international economics right so and you have others who uh who basically um have questions right so in uh, so the the uh i what i find the course is successful if it's the case that people realize that look it's a complex issue um i personally don't care where you end up well i do but but that you of you your throughout the course you're presented with lots of stylized facts and things that are irrevocably happening if you want to take a position on globalization you got to find an argument that takes care or considers all of these that's basically the the, the challenge right all right peter well i want to make sure we have some time to talk about uh, your book because i feel like this story around globalization is a real personal uh dimension uh to this uh, you want to tell us about the book that you uh wrote with uh with your brother recently yeah maybe you can uh, show my uh, my so this is this is uh, a uh, a project that basically started a bit as a 
a coincidence. I mean, it's a, it's a, a, a book that I've written with my brother, who's a historian, uh, about my grandmother. Right. So, and uh, it's it, it was just published in uh, in Belgium, and uh, we are bringing it to the United States. And why is this an interesting story? I mean, apart from that, uh, um, it's my grandmother. Is that she came to the United States in the twenties and thirties, and she worked as a maid in the US, right? Uh, especially a maid of uh, of uh, rich people, and then she she actually came back, right? So, and the 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 um, the, the why, why this was something that was worthwhile writing a book about is when once there is the, the, the coincidence that we found a few years ago letters and documents and and pictures uh, so lots of information right so but it also basically is an opportunity is an opportunity to look at a very turbulent part of history right from the perspective of uh, or following the 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 sojourn of a maid, right, of an an edu- uneducated woman, right. So, which is not typically how uh, history is written, right. So, we found this is a very interesting opportunity to 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 uh, follow her path. Um, at the same time, it's an incredibly turbulent period, right. So, this is a uh, also the, an interesting period. This is uh, the the jazz age, and then you have the depression. Right, so and it's it's very much a, a a story about globalization because she basically is in the United States as this massive flow of immigration from Europe comes to an end, right? Where you have an incredibly uh, diverse population, right? The levels of migration, right, are the same now as they were then, right? So and you have this very layered society where she's basically. Uh, put in right. So this is a uh, th- this is one. And the second part is that it's it's very much also a, a story about inequality, right? So not just because she works for these incredibly rich people. For example, one is is the 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 lawyer who uh, negotiated the Panama Canal, right? So the the other one is the family associated with uh, Smith Barney, right? So the investment bank, right? So so. Through her, you get a sense very much of this this incredibly layered society with this where people some people are incredibly wealthy, whereas she as a maid has to navigate this right so so and this is uh um look history does not repeat itself for sure, but there are parallels uh things that you see that look the inequality, the level of migration the uh the um Especially the, the the economic crisis that hits the twenties. I mean, after the, the depression, right? And then here, right? If you we had the financial crisis, we had COVID, right? And so, and these these crises lay bare this incredible inequality, right? So, and and there's a bit of a sense, right? That also um, that until we we solve some of these burning issues, it will be very hard to move forward. Right, so and if you you saw that in the U.S., right, it's basically with with the war and then the 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 Great Society, right, this this inequality really got shrunk, right. So and uh, there was a bit of a a new social contract, right. So now obviously this is a bit the the background of the story for us as well, right. So it's basically a uh, a conversation with her past, right. So bringing in personal things because. Um, as you know, um, and this is a bit the challenge that uh, an academic faces. We write fairly technical um, papers, right? So um, yes, we teach where we try to uh, translate, have a conversation with students about these issues, right? So, but there's also a, a broader public, right? So, and and this was a bit an attempt on my part, together with my brother, to. To write a book that um, talks about, of course, my grandmother, but also globalization, inequality, in uh, following the story of an ordinary woman, right, and uh, try to uh, to narrate and uh, talk about this in a different way. So you know, it was it was it was it was incredibly rewarding. But it was a challenge, and I I don't think without the COVID crisis, this book 
would have been here. It was more like, look, the first year, right? So you basically, uh, you were, we were all, right, fairly restricted in our uh, uh, social interactions, right? And that's basically where uh, we were all figuring this out. It was a time with uh, quite a bit of uh, tension and certainty. And I tried to uh, translate that tension or this anxiety in, in a productive way. And I just uh, wrote Right. So, um, yeah. So, so th this is a, this is a bit the story of the book and it's a bit, it's a story of globalization about inequality. And that's why I think it goes beyond, uh, just telling her story, even though my takeaway for her is like, what's, what's it, what's I found surprising is that, um, even though she was this uh, uneducated woman that she clearly made her own decisions. Right. So, she was not just floating on the the waves of history, so to speak. So she made her own decisions. And uh, even though you could already see that Europe, uh, things were darkening there in the 30s, that she came back, right? So she had her own reasons. And at the same time, it's a story that almost got lost. I mean, we knew about it, but really not much. Right? And it also says something about... Uh, the role of women, right? So that, uh, in a way, um, yeah, the the model when she came back was the typical uh, household where basically the, the 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 man is the boss. He um, he uh, earns the money, right? And uh, the woman steps back in second position, right? Takes care of the education of the kids and even though she contributed significantly, also brought quite some saving back. So this really was not part of the uh, the narrative of her, her legacy, right? So, so that, that's a little bit the uh, the story. So, and we we're we are we are, we are working on uh, bringing this to the to the US. So, reception so far in, in Belgium has been quite quite good. So, but uh, yeah, we we got to work on uh, US now. Well, I imagine it was, I mean, to learn, you probably learned all kinds of things about your grandmother that maybe you didn't know, or you um, maybe just had heard about, but weren't sure about. Uh, I wonder, uh, Peter, someone reading this book, what, what do you hope readers take away from it? Uh, you touched on a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, somebody closes the book. What, what do you want them to think about? Oh, so I think there's, there's really many different levels at which you can read this. One could be just focusing on her. Right. So, and as I said, that even though she was this, uh, this woman with very little education was a maid, right? So that, uh, yeah, she, uh, worked her way through things, right? So, uh, but I mean, it's, you could also look at, uh, trying to figure out the, uh, society in the US and how it contrasts with, with a country like Belgium, right? So in this, this very layered society that I should say, um, was um, was also anchored in uh, immigration laws that were very unfair, right? So, I mean, uh, I don't have to repeat this here, but we know uh, Chinese people were excluded, right? So it was the case that um, also within the European migration population, right? So that uh, um, the ones from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, were the, the ones with a bit of a darker skin, the ones uh, that... Uh, had a different religion, right? So the, these were not welcome, right? Or they they were welcome, but they're uh, they were restricted, right? So in the um, even in the maid community, right? For the for the well-off people, you saw that yes, these were basically only the uh, more the uh, Belgian, German, Scandinavian, French. Uh, uh, immigrants that had these jobs, right? So if you were from Southern Europe, if you were from Eastern Europe, um, you had no space in this, right? So, so, so you could you could um, read this book and get a sense of, wow, I mean, um, what we now think of as, look, uh, the United States, this started off with a really incredible, I mean, not started off, but like in the 19th century and then beginning of the 20th, right? So it was an incredibly uh, layered society, right? With uh, with stark differences, right? In a way that um, 
without making a cheap comparison, but that you see, look, um, the different ethnicities, right? So that we, uh, how we deal with, with them, how we uh, accept them, that's, that's an ongoing discussion. And clearly at the time that was, so there's, there's some, uh, um, yeah, the, it's, it's, that could be a way of looking at this, right? So looking at this, uh, uh, then um, there could be a way of uh, seeing how uh, um, you have a, a, a Belgium, right? A small country as contrast, right? So, but uh, that uh, is also a country where um, that has its own past, right? So uh, I don't have to repeat as we notice, it's also colonial. Uh, country, right? So when my grandmother left, this was uh, Congo was still a colony, right? So how does such a background inform a, a maid who also, I should say, was not only active in New, New York, but also spent some time in the segregated South, right? So, so this, there's this lots of possible ways in which you can read this, right? So it's not for me to say this is the, the takeaway, but Clearly, I was informed by uh, yeah my uh, my expertise in globalization, and then pairing up with my brother, who's a historian, to to say, look, um, given that we we got this actual ac accidental trove of uh, of letters and photos and uh, documents, to say, look, is there a way of uh, of looking at this life that uh, was always in the background? So, well, Peter, it's been great talking with you. I, I feel like we go, we could keep this conversation going for a while, but um, I want to, I want to wrap up here by asking um, the last question that we we typically ask for our guests here on Office Hours. Undoubtedly, we've had some folks here uh, on this session who've gotten interested in the topics uh, that you've been talking about, things that you've shared here. Uh, what would you say um, three books uh, that you would recommend? Uh, for people to check out if they're interested in learning more, in addition to, of course, uh, your your book about your grandmother that will be uh, in English uh, in the not too distant future. Yes, um, yeah, I mean that, that's a bit of a difficult question, but so, so let me uh, pick a few, right? So uh, I'll pick three. I'll, I'll restrict myself to three. All right, I promise. So um, maybe um, on um, on water, right? So um, there is a book on. Um, on uh, um, Israel, right? So Israel has faced really incredible challenges as far as water is concerned, right? So in, uh, there's a book by uh, Seth Siegel, Let There Be Water, right? That basically deals with it. And it's, it's the nice thing about it is it's well written, right? So and it, it gives you a very good sense of what, uh, what the water challenges are and how they are being resolved within that context. And also, um, I mean, water touches upon many dimensions, right? Also, in this case, the, the international relationship, Israel and its surrounding areas, right? So how it could basically also uh, make its knowledge of water and its expertise a uh, an incredible asset and exploit that in the region, right? So that, that's, uh, that's a beautiful book. Then um, on um, maybe in line a little bit about uh, what I was talking about, about the, the book of my mother, and there's a nice short book uh, by Gerber on uh, American immigration, a very short introduction, right? That basically um, sketches a little bit the the migration, largest migration, may, uh, so this big migration wave, but then also up till now, right? How, what has changed, how we've dealt with it, and uh, how it was anchored in societal debates. This is a, a nice little book. And then there is a third one that's more related to my gem courses, right? So to the um, so and it's a, it's a book by Krugman. Um, it's it's the the return of depression economics, and uh, so it, it, he wrote this a while ago, right? So after the the financial crisis, but I think it's incredibly important, like to to understand where we are, right? Since uh, I feel like. Um, our response to the financial crisis, right, in 2008, right, and then in part also a repeat of that with COVID, right, has put us, I mean, I'm not saying it's still the same questions, but 
I think, yeah, this 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 book um, is a, is a very nice way of of starting to think about the the challenges in an international context that. Uh, uh, Economists, students of economists, MBA students, right, uh, should uh, should be aware of, and will will get uh, 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 yeah, a better view on uh, after they've taken our uh, German course. Which is really, I should emphasize this: this is really a very nice put to, nicely put together course uh, that looks at the global economy through different cases uh, from different countries, and uh, this this is a bit of an appetizer. I think. Well, Peter, thank you so much for, for joining us for this session. It's been such a pleasure to our attendees. Uh, thank you so much for taking an hour or so out of your out of your Friday to come and, and listen and learn. As always, we'll share the recording uh, of this conversation on our podcast, uh, Experience Darden and the Exec MBA podcast. So keep an eye out for it there. And uh, of course, we'll also share it on our blog, Discover Darden. And a thank you, as always, to Maggie Dodson for assisting with this session. It was great to have such an great engaged group. Uh, Peter, lots of great questions in the Q&A about water. And uh, certainly a lot of people were sparked around, around that topic. So um, unfortunately, we can't always get to them all. But it has been a wonderful conversation. And thank oh. you all for your time. Have, a, have okay. a wonderful weekend. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. And that was our recent Office Hours conversation featuring Professor Peter DeBear, a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.